Welcome to Executive Stories, a podcast series hosted by me, Brad Finney. Come on a journey with me as we explore not just the businesses, but the personal lives, the backstory behind remarkable directors and senior executives. We talk to John Berg, Managing Director of Kitchen Connection. Kitchen Connection is arguably the largest supplier of kitchens across Queensland, New South Wales and South Australia. John has a long and successful history of turning underperforming companies into successful and thriving businesses, not just in Australia but overseas as well, and not just with small businesses, with international conglomerates such as Gillette. John has an innate skill of reading people. John has applied all of his years of training in the corporate environment to delivering on corporate turnarounds. But John's also equally passionate about the customer experience. He is so passionate about wanting to ensure that his customers receive the best service and the best experience from start to finish. And after all, aren't all good companies based on that? John Burke, Managing Director of KWB Group that runs the Kitchen Connection business. Welcome to executivestories.com. Thank you, Brad. Nice to be here. I'm going to jump straight into it. So if anyone looks at your LinkedIn profile, you've got a really full bio of the last 30 odd years of your life. And it's not just the, the one-liners that sort of say role, title, and how long you were there for. You have these big, long descriptions. And if anyone reads those descriptions, you'll see since like 1991 when you were with Gillette in South Korea, there's been a pattern of your career. And that pattern that I can observe is starting off in departments or companies which are underperforming and then driving those companies into much better shape than when you join them. Um, And there's about three or four main phases of your career following that pattern one can't help but think that you, um, you're driven to that kind of um, situation and you find it kind of compelling. What is it about finding something that's underperforming and wanting to make it great again that you do find so compelling? Good question, good, very good question. I think I look at each of these businesses and often as you come, particularly a large part of my early career was involved with corporates um, and as you say, you start off in different departments and they move you around and you have finance experience and marketing experience and sales experience. And then you are able to see the, see organisations probably at a larger, at a 35,000 foot view. And you tend to take on, a, I think, the training thing very much around problem solving. And problem solving in, in corporates means you, it's not just sitting there and saying, look, we've got that solution. It's a lot of indirect um, influence on people to get everyone to come to an idea to solve a, solve a problem. Um, doing that within corporations, they see that as uh, probably a, a big attribute. And it's a lot of stuff that you don't get taught at university. A lot of stuff, I think my background's been a large part learned in a boardroom. And in a boardroom, you actually start to see how senior people, much larger, longer experiences of, than you were at a younger age, perform and the way they go about problem solving. That has led me very much into, that that experience led me very much into um, 
working in organizations, and when you do perform in organizations, they pick high performers, preferably, that say, we need to solve a problem. Um, I know the example, the reason I ended up in South Korea was meeting, the, they came out, said, look, you've done a great job doing what you're doing in your department in Australia. There's a problem in South Korea. So you were working with Gillette in Australia? No, I was actually working for a company called SC Johnson, Johnson. in Australia. Yeah. And SC Johnson um, is a commercial. It's not a, not related to Johnson & Johnson. It's a publicly listed company. SC mm-hmm. Johnson's a privately family-owned company out of Racine, Wisconsin. And um, in that period, I was working in a commercial part of the business, which was Johnson Wax, which a lot of older people would know very much clearly. Floor waxes, they do Glade aerosols, they oh, do yeah, raid yeah. insecticides, they do mm-hmm. a full range of consumer good products that we moved into a commercial environment as well. Mm-hmm. And they do very much specialised floor finishes in airports and um, high gloss finishes that you need in shopping centres and so forth. And I was very much on that commercial side. So um, Gillette lured you over to South Korea for, for what, nine years? I, so I had two stints in South Korea for, okay. close, for close to nine years. Yeah. Um, but it was, again, the reason it was and the challenge I had. I had two two things that I really learned out of my corporate younger days was I did want to travel overseas. I saw the advantages of working with multinationals, mm. great training programs, really great way that I think I've carried through my whole career in terms of policies and procedures and disciplines that, that make a business function. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a great ambition as going over to different conferences and so forth that I was actually able to fulfill my overseas experience that I should have done if I did full-time university because I did part-time university. Um, I was actually doing this on, a, on, on the bank fold and the, the travel account of, of a, a business, which was great. But I always had this ambition of, of working overseas and getting into a, a foreign climate. Um, and I can remember being asked to go to South Korea and immediately saying yes. And that was about lunchtime and we had to go back and do more meetings in the afternoon. And I remember sitting, tapping my foot in the boardroom table saying, I've got to get home to find an atlas to find out where the hell South <laughs> Korea is. I, had, I made a commitment to a country I really, it was 1989, it was one year after the Olympics. I knew whether it was Olympic, but I knew very little about the culture. And in those days, uh, South Korea, if we don't particularly hear now, issues with North Korea, they're very much a hermit kingdom. I think 1% of the population had a passport. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, a strong US military presence was back then. There was 45,000 military people in South Korea at the time. So everyone had learnt to speak English in an American way. So a little Aussie boy coming up and saying, what did you say? Um, They couldn't understand me. So there was this this desire to solve a problem though, an opportunity to sort of branch out from your corporate experience and to dive into something which was a big problem that needed to be solved and you could use the skills in your corporate days to solve the problem that Gillette presented itself. Correct. Yeah. And I think that the biggest learning I had as a, as a youngster um, was that, the, or the best moves I made was working for large multinationals, um, the likes of uh, uh, Johnson & Johnson, great training programs. You start to, because you don't, it's not stuff they teach you in university, it wasn't in those days. I think they're a bit more attuned to it today. And it was stuff that they didn't teach you um, at any part of your university course to how to interact and, and manage those things. So I, that and was that's really interesting. Learning. And that's an interesting observation though, isn't it? Because today there's a big slant towards telling people you don't have to join a big corporate straight out of university. You can become an entrepreneur, 
but the big corporates still do have, I think, a role to play in training people up in these ways that you've just described to make you more ready for entrepreneurial land um, when you're ready for it. But it's, I guess, finding that opportunity to go, I'm ready to switch now, I'm ready to pivot, I'm not going to get too comfortable in my current corporate land. Yeah. I'm going to take some risk. Yeah. And look, through my career, I saw many business colleagues do that. They took the jump and say, well, you, know, you think, what are you doing? It's a comfortable career. You've got your company car. You've got a nice salary. What are you doing giving that all up to go down this hunt? And, you know, I always had the earning to do it. I knew one day I was going to do it. Mm. Um, and you ended up sort of getting, I knew I was not a fit to the corporate culture for the long term, the, mm. the politics that are played and the, yeah. the way these organisations work. But you used it in the terms of, I don't think you were consciously using it, you were just learning. Things were acquisitions, joint ventures were happening, things that you were becoming part of that you would never have that experience around. Um, that was what the, these learnings of buying $70 million companies and working how due diligence actually really works and how thorough you've got to be, that you can bring that experience along to you no matter where you go. Um, they're the sort of learn, key learnings that you had through, through a corporate background. And what did the opportunity itself teach you that corporate land couldn't have taught you? For example, the Gillette scenario. What what did you learn in that about solving problems and building a company from a not so successful position up to something that's successful? And you went, wow, that's something I learned on the job again. I think it's um, it's having structure. It's 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 not it's not taking a preset model into a, an environment. You've got to go and learn them. You know all the models that business models that can work and can't work. But I think you've got to go, what it teaches you is go in, assess and and plan, maybe do a little bit of test and then then execute. But, but coming in, um, I think a big thing I learned was strategy, and you see a lot of great titles in company uh, personnel these days, senior strategist and chief strategist on digital or whatever. Strategy to me is quite easy. It's, it's, it's a lot of it's common sense. Yep, there's some smart people who do some good smart strategy and have a bit of vision and can see it long. But the bigger issue and the bigger lack I think we have in, in general management around the world these days is the ability of managers to execute strategy effectively. Um, there are a lot more strategies that have failed than have been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, so sitting around developing strategy can be done in a day or two days. Executing can take five years and executing effectively and efficiently. And I think that's where everyone sort of, there's a large bit for, no, no, look, I'm, I've done my degrees, I've done my uh, business, my MBAs, and now I just, I'm just i a strategist, so I'm not actually the person who implements. So it's, I think we, we need more of those ex- great executors of strategy, not necessarily the strategists to do it. And you were the executor yeah. in that sense. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about getting all the various stakeholders on board because it's not just you that is or the, the strategist that needs to execute. It's getting everyone else to play their part in the strategy execution that's important. Um, what challenges did you find trying to corral everyone to head in that direction of executing a strategy, especially when it's an underperforming department? I think, you, I think it's twofold in, in what you've got to do. It's great having the experience of... I had a, a stint in sales for quite a few years. I've had a large stint in marketing. I've had stints in administration and general management. When I go to talk to my sales forces today, I talk from experience. I'm because I've had the experience. I've 
I know what they feel and I can, being a salesman, you can embellish a lot of that as well. Um, that's a different language you've got to convince a marketing person about. You've got to be a lot more factual and, and figures and, and so forth. So the experience, it was the ability, to, and this is again what corporates did for you, they moved you through these departments. So you were, you, all of a sudden you're you're getting a 180. Then you've got a 270 view, and all the, you know, want, you can nearly get a 360 view of what the problem is. Um, that's that sort of experience is it's only time. It's not just because I've, I've got a degree behind me. It's it's the time that you do that and you view it. So every time you go into a new problem, the language you talk about, the background you talk about, and that's what general management. I've probably been in general management a fair part of my career. As much as the word general, you have to be general. You have to know enough, but have a very good general behind you who is like a finance. I know enough about finance, but I'm not a technical finance person by any means. Um, but I have a great person in finance. Same with sales. I'm not the best salesman in the world, but I've been able to find a general who I think is one of the best salesmen in Australia today. Won't name him, just in case anyone. <laughs> Um, and in marketing, it's uh, I probably t tend to be a little bit more hands-on with marketing, advertising, and so forth because I've grown up mostly with that through my career, um, and learn a lot just through the the large global organisations that really put a, put a lot of you know a, their whole brand, life is their brand. Um, but having those experiences of what when you come into a room to talk about a problem and, and take a challenge on, you've got to be able to talk the different languages and convince people. They've all different stakeholders. They've all got their different goals. The KPIs might be changing now. You have to explain what that is and what the benefits and keep showing the light at the end of the tunnel for each of these people and why for the greater good of the organisation, it, it's it's a goal you want to, we all want to achieve. And so in that there, you can see that you've got to motivate people and you said light at the end of the tunnel. It's interesting to think that it's not just the theory, it's not just the training, but there's an element of the John Burke that, you know, and your gut and the way that you deal with it personally that no one else would possibly deal with the situation because you're unique in your approach do you just sort of then get in having all these tools at your disposal do you just sort of get in there and follow your gut and your intuition and sort of see your enthusiasm and see where it all goes and to try and bring everyone together yeah i think a lot of a lot of business i think you Lee Trevino, the golfer came up with a great saying you know the the harder he practices the luckier he gets mm. Um, I think part of that gut feel is the fact that you put the yards in you. That gut feel becomes, it, it's instinct, but it's, it's instinct coming from experience. And that's why I just know this is going to work. Because I've seen somewhere in some other model in some other part of my life, it's sort of worked that way. And I think if I can apply the similar principles, it might be a little bit different scenario, but apply the similar principles I did, and then you push that forward. Um, but you've got to sell your idea, and your, your idea is never 100%. So mm. you throw the idea out there, you create, create the scenario of what this is all going to be, then you come back into your stakeholders and you actually get their feedback and have to convince them back around. Because some will have a feedback, but they don't know what they don't know in some cases. They don't know what that means at a marketing level, or what impact that has to the supply chain, or what impact that does. So you've got to be able to, as a general manager, you've got to be able to explain to those people what that impact's about. Oh, now I get it. Okay, so it's, I'm looking at it always at the 35,000 foot view. That, that most people, we ask them to look into a lower level because that's what drives business, the detail. And so the reason why these 
businesses that underperforming is because they didn't have someone at that particular role that was able to see all the different facets of the business, join them all together. So it is a very specific person that can do that role to bring it out of the, the ashes, so to speak. I think so. I think, look, I think there's a myriad of problems or issues that cause a, a business to go sour. Um, a lot of it is around people. Sometimes it's square pegs and round holes and that person mm. just doesn't get the business or has put people underneath them that don't get the business and they can't think. I think people's a large part of what, why problems occur at the end of the business is people. Um, yeah, but I've also been in businesses that I just saw an opportunity. Um, I think you just look through a region I, I, I acquired and put quite a few bit of money on the table. I always look now and believe having skin in the game is such an important part to belief of what you, you do. Um, and I acquired this thing called, um, it was actually called Abbey International, but he had brands sitting in that business that were brands that would became, and now become global brands in a lot of ways called, called the New Zealand Mint. Mm-hmm. But it was Abbey International, it was a jewellery company. He had a brand under there called New Zealand Mint, which was made minted coins. Now, minted coins in this day and age is a, a very niche market. There are about 70 private mints around the world that make coins of commemorative coins or bullion coins of some sort. Uh, I was living in New Zealand at the time, but he had brands of the New Zealand Mint and he had brands called the, the Gold Kiwi, which I then created that as a the New Zealand's gold bullion and we pressed and minted gold bullion coins in, in New Zealand as we did then re- did the silver fern. So we made two great iconic uh, symbols out of New Zealand and they now are literally the the precious metal signatures of, of New Zealand in, in precious metal. Um, but that business didn't exist. That business I had to go out, I had to investigate, I realised there's an amazing market in commemorative coins, an amazing market in, in selling commemorative coins, but you had to come up and create the idea. It's like creating a new music song and make it a hit. You had to find out who your customer bases were. And our customer bases were the most bizarre. The largest savings bank in Russia was our biggest customer. The British Royal Mint was a customer. The Australian Royal Mint was our customer. Um, Perth Mint was our customer. We had mints all over the world in the US buying what we they thought was a limited edition, pure metal, gold, and so forth. So that's that was probably, I think, one of my great, and it was a, a very big challenge to do that. Um, and that business now, I think when I bought it, was about a two million turnover. I think it's they're, they're reporting close to a hundred million turnover now. Because you sold that business, or you you managed the exit of that business, so you look at your yeah. LinkedIn profile. Um, something that really st- stuck out for me, or stood out for me in your LinkedIn profile, discussing that time in your life, was you mentioned at the time of the exit that you were going through a significant personal health issue. That's not the usual thing that you normally put on your LinkedIn profile. It must have been quite significant to sort of draw, put a spotlight on it. Can you tell me anything about that? Uh, in, let's go back then for a little while, 2004, um, 2004, I was, uh, I was diagnosed with leukaemia. So I have uh, what they call chronic myeloid leukaemia. Uh, it's the rarest form of leukaemia, but it's fortunately today is probably one of the most progressive in, in um drug therapy to for leukemia product. Um, but I started down there, I was diagnosed around June 2004. Um, I was on a chemotherapy type drug um, and I went downhill basically. And 
I decided to pause the interview here and John and I had a brief chat about this episode in his life, which was a really emotional period for him. He opened up and went back to a place which he hadn't been to for a very long time and I'm grateful for him doing that. We join the interview a little bit further up here. So we were just talking about your diagnosis of leukemia um, at around about the time of you know, the New Zealand Mint thing going really well. Um, clearly a massive challenge in your life to overcome the, the, the side effects of the drug, the devastating news that it is. I think this is something that, a, com- a question that I heard Tony Robbins ask someone recently was, you know, or a statement that he made was, it's the decisions you make in your life, not the conditions that you have that control the destiny of your life. Um, how does someone have a condition like that and bounce back or continue to have the resilience like what does that say, does that saying resonate with you in terms of what you've had to go through because i'm seeing where you are today so i think it's a bit of a a leading question in a way but i don't know how you feel personally inside about that oh no doubtly that had a major impact on both myself and my family at the time um and you know exiting the business and it's a stress of not being able to be in the business on a day-to-day basis um, and then saying, look, the, 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 the way out here is you've got to get, move that business on and because and, it was a very much a hands-on business. It wasn't a business you could pass on to someone just because of the detail and the contacts that you had on a global basis. Um, I was fortunate, you know, I was able to, through business brokers, able to, to, to find a buyer, which was actually one of the, one of the investors in, in the, uh, that had gold investments held with us as well. So that was very fortunate. Um, but, and I, you know, I, I had another year off after that just to get myself back together and deal with the, my, my condition. Um, and once you know, I, I had a change of drugs that changed my state of mind very, very quickly over a, a three, six month period. Um, and that, that change of mind was very much, look, I can do this again. It's, I was 45 at the time. Um, you sort of start thinking after 45, is my career finished and who's going to want me and so forth. I was fortunately again through probably, you know, again, the experience and background of companies I'd had a network there that I was able to go back into a corporate. It wasn't probably my first choice to go into, but it was again a privately owned company. So it was Cola. This was the Cola company, yeah, mm. which coincidentally, as I mentioned earlier, the SC Johnson company was in Racine, Wisconsin, with about an hour north all the places in the world was another privately owned company, Cola, um, in uh, the township of Cola, near Sheboygan, which is on Lake Michigan. One hour's north, privately owned company, but I ended up working for them. They're, they are the largest, uh, or one of the largest bathroom fixture manufacturers in the world. They're also the third largest coal. A lot of people wouldn't know coal or engines. On, you're riding around on, on, right on lawnmower. Often there's a coal or engine sitting under oh, maybe okay. a Husqvarna. Yep. Yep. Uh, right on lawnmower. They're also in the marine engines. If you see the large boats around, there'll be a cola diesel engine driving those. Um, so they're in very large in, in small things. They're also um, into golf. Uh, Mr. Cola, as I used to term it, is the one I think it's about 75, 76 now. Is one share. It's about a $7 billion turnover company. He, Presumably, you don't have any, didn't have any skin in the game of this. Not in, not in that. No, no. 
Because that was another successful turnaround story of the area within Cola that yes. you were working, wasn't it? And how long did that last for? I was with Cola for around about five years. Did five, five years. Five years. Achieved the mission. Achieved the mission. And, and we were living in New Zealand. I was based in a regional role there looking after Australia and New Zealand. We had some manufacturing facility in New Zealand, which I eventually, we moved offshore because um, it was an acrylics manufacturing plant that just didn't make sense being a, in a high labour labour market in, such as New Zealand. So we sourced that out of, out of China. Um, coal, unfortunately, were growing very strong in China. It's the strongest bathroom brand in, Australia, in China right now. Um, but they were buying a lot of manufacturing facilities. So we were able to get a very good quality product out of, out of China, and that, that helped also rebuild it. But that was there were wider problems in terms of that. It's the, the plumbing market in Australia is a very regulated market. Um, you have to use DR brass. I think people might have just recently heard where Audi bought in a, a tap that they were oh, yeah. selling and yeah. their thousands because it wasn't actually watermarked. Mm. Uh, very strong barriers to entry. Um, so there's a lot of costs that the coal company fortune willing to put in to get product right for the Australian market and New Zealand market. Um, and part of that was around distribution. We, we tied up with the right distri- distributors at the time um, and got through some very good growth out of that. Um, so you finished that project. Um, then Kitchen Connection came a calling. Mm-hmm. Um, former owners, Australian Kitchen Industries, AKI. What was it in the Kitchen Connection opportunity that you saw as something that was promising or compelling for you to join their, their story? I think coming in from the, and having a little bit of affiliation with the bathrooms and, and the kitchens, um, living in New Zealand at the time, I had some young kids and uh, my wife, even though she's New Zealander, we made the decision that we wanted to come back to Australia. I hadn't been back in Australia for over 20 years. Mm. Um, but getting to that age where I think there was a lot more opportunity for the children. Um, career-wise for me, I thought there would be more opportunity as well um, and fell into this kitchen connection role. Um, it was it's owned by a private equity company at the, at the time uh, and we're doing a very large play on kitchen companies around Australia in terms of acquiring s- small c- companies and then putting them all together under one one banner and then running it out of Brisbane as a, a manufacturing facility. Um, so the, it, it, it was nice, it, I went through quite a lengthy uh, interview process there, but it, it was the ability again, understanding all parts of the business. Um, the only part I really didn't know was how to screw a piece of, <laughs> a piece of uh, a screw into a piece of board or something like that. So I didn't, didn't know the cabinetry game, but I knew the business game. Um, unfortunately, when we, Bought that it was under a company called Australian Kitchen Industries, and they had the Kitchen Connection brand. Um, it would it had been burning a bit of cash. Uh, there were a lot of bad, big decisions and sort of incorrect market decisions made at the time. Um, they were doing manufacturing, they were doing retailing, they were doing the installing, and, and they weren't probably doing all parts to the best ability. So, was your role to come in and turn it around, like your other? Right. Very, very much so. That was part of what, uh, you know, I sold myself the ability to turn it around. Uh, unfortunately, when I got in there, it was, uh, there were a few skeletons in the closet. Um, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a business that could have been turned around. So for the last, I was there for about eight months, nine, uh, nine months, probably, probably after three months, the, the project was how do we package this all up to sell it? So we worked on a six-month process of meeting with and trying to suit working with some brokers to try and sell the business to larger parts 
it was such a large business, it was very hard for people to get their heads around the complexity of it. Um, also, it was a loss-making business, so that made it even harder. We put a good plan or turnaround plan with it. Um, and in June 2012, one of the directors from a private equity company made a decision, got a little bit spooked about a government change that was going to happen, uh, where he'd become personally responsible. There were ATO tax um, payment repayments being made. There were a lot. There was a lot of a lot of rubbish in the business. Uh, so he moved that business into administration in June 2018, uh, 2012. Sorry. Um, at that point in time, we went into over. Uh, overcharge in terms of again finding working with the administrator to find and suit some people to business. Uh, that happened for six weeks. The administrator came to us uh, early August and said, "Look, we've exhausted all avenues. There is no all the companies that are looking at doing this um, have pulled out, um, and we're going to close the business." Um, at that point in time, I, I sat with my CFO Chris and just said, "Look, this is too good a business." There's too many people vested in this business. There's some really good parts of this business, but there are some really bad parts of the business. And you knew brands as well. And we knew the brands. And oh, there the power of brands as the well. Power New brand. Zealand Mintos. And, and it had strong brands. They had strong brands. They sort of mucked around with the brands by co-branding. When they picked up a company in, in uh, Melbourne, it was Impala, but then they added Kitchen Connection and Impala. So they started to confuse the consumer a bit as well. So... I knew we could fix all that that right. So we looked at it all and said, look, we know we've done due diligence for 15 companies now, so we should know, we know what's good, what's bad. So we went back to the administrator and said, well, look, you know, we, we think we can save, we can take our Brisbane business, we can take our Adelaide business, we can take a business out of New South Wales, and we can, we can do this, and we offered what we would pay for that. We also have dealt with the, the social media issue of having 450 kitchens because the old business was in Melbourne, they were in Canberra, they were in Sydney. We didn't want any of that, but we had to go and finish everyone's kitchens. And there were something like 450 unfinished kitchens at the time when the administration finished. Um, so we were flying cabinet makers around the country and trying to fix this up, and it cost a lot of money to do that. Um, and this is your money now, isn't it? Exactly, it's a little bit different. Skin yeah. the game, as you were saying. So we knew, we knew I, I just knew there were some very key parts in that business uh, its software system was just outstanding, but there were no the management was not using the system to to its full extent, and everyone's using Excel spreadsheets and just not it wasn't working. But the basis there had been a lot of money put into the business. Uh, Macquarie Bank was a, a major stakeholder in the business, as was South Australian Western Australia Superannuation. There were you know, there was twenty two million dollars left on the balance sheet when that went under. Um, which was very, very sad to see because in, in essence it was a great business. Um, so what we did, we, um, we struck a deal with the administrator. Um, we then, uh, we fortunately talked about about 82 people came across with us to the new business out of about 125. Um, and then we started to rebuild the business. First of all, we had to get everyone right. I, I was on social media 24-7 dealing with people who were screaming or not having their kitchen finished. And eventually, after about a six-month period, we'd finished everyone's kitchens. But it ran us into a Christmas period, which is a very low season uh, for manufacturing, and we were running into some sort of cash flow problem. So I went out and we, we found another suitor to bring into the business, which fortunately was a company that understood what we were trying to do, 
um, and put the backing in behind that. And, and it was an ASX listed company called Joyce, Joyce Corp. And they took 51% ownership of the company. Um, myself and Chris, the, the CFO, we took the other, the other even shares. So that's where we started on the journey. Did you keep all the 82 employees or did that number shrink? Um, no, we, we kept all 82 employees and then we slowly started building it. Um, and we started getting people to work the processes and procedures that were laid out previously, but due to just lack of discipline and management practices, uh, was letting go. We, we went in and re, redid our showrooms. We started to invest back in the business. Uh, as the money started to come through, we slowly ground our way um, back into a, a profitable situation where we could start some reinvesting, get, get it into the state we have. And that took about 12 months of very, very hard work and uh, living week to week trying to make sure you know, we can pay the salaries the next week and, <laughs> and we've got another business for a week. And how many employees do you have now? About 130 employees now. Um, so about a 50% yeah. increase? Well, the interesting thing now is it wasn't about the number of people. It was about the efficiencies that we were getting out of our people and out of our showrooms that created the, the thing. We, we started with 12 showrooms. We actually closed one. We moved a lot around from bad locations into good locations. Uh, that was a key strategy of moving away from um, strips, suburban strip malls to actually major homemaker centres. Uh, all through Brisbane, um, in Katara in Newcastle, which is probably the largest homemaker centre in Australia, um, into Jeff's Cross into South Australia, and that, getting into these homemaker centres where you've got the likes of a JB Hi-Fi and the likes of Good Guys and, and Spotlight and Anaconda and all these people, that helped us get a lot more people through the door. A bit more expense in our, um, the rents were higher because you're in a, in a much more upmarket market. But the traffic came, um, and we knew we had a very good retail system that would capture that traffic and take it on a, a journey. And, and is it still a, a people game? Because the timing of this interview is quite coincidental in that I've actually had my own wardrobe connection wardrobe installed, and we were talking about it just yesterday. And you asked me, so you know, we've got 130 nearly employees today, and uh, which I didn't know. And you said, "Oh, who did your installation, and who who was the person that helped you?" And I gave you the name, John, and you knew exactly who I was talking about. And the guy hasn't actually been with the business for that long. So clearly, you know who's on the front line. Do you see that as being, you've got the efficiencies in the system, but having that touch point through to the people on the front line and the customer facing, is that still a really important part of these consumer facing businesses when you're the MD up the top trying to keep your keep all the, all the plates spinning? Yeah, and, and look at, the bigger you grow, that challenge gets larger. You try and pride yourself on knowing everybody in the company. And you know, every time we're traveling around, we drop into showrooms and say hi. And um, But it is a challenge as it gets bigger. Um, and we're, you know, but every, you know, we, we still interview every, as lower level, I'll interview every showroom manager we have in the company. Um, part of that is also selling the culture of what this business is about. It's a fun culture, but it's a very high-performance culture. Mm. Um, so, and being that people, being with the people is very, very important. Don't ever want to see that, or think that, oh, I've never met, met John Burke, I don't know him. Most, I, I would comfortably say I know 90, 95% plus people in the company reasonably well. And that element of fun that you just described, 
is that something which you believe is a crucial element and ingredient to having a consumer-facing business with lots of employees? Because you describe yourself as being kind of a funny kind of guy. I guess others would describe you as being a funny guy, and you've mentioned it then. Is it important to have that sort of humour in, in what you do on a day-to-day basis for everyone? Look, I I like to think I can I sell things through humour. Sometimes you can make you can you can make a point through humour. Um, it's it's lighthearted. You you can't never take yourself too serious. You never take your position too seriously because at the end of the day, we're we're all the same. Um, so I never sort of and I don't like seeing people put themselves on a on a pilster. Um, I don't think anyone in this business does. I think we're all we're all in it together. Uh, we're opening when we open a new showroom. It's all the same people, no matter what title, got their hands and knees on the ground scrubbing the floor the day before the, the showroom opens, and that's part of that team effort. No, no job's too small, too big for anyone to do. Uh, I think that's a great little key part of our culture that um, we'd never want to lose. Um, so you want to be at every showroom opening, and I'm always there the day before. My wife gets involved in the business. She does the decorations of all the kitchens. Um, so there's so much detail in the open showroom and all the girls who are going to be working the showroom, everyone's there and it creates a really good pre-opening team, uh, team spirit and team culture and, and that's, that, that I think is a nice little ingredient to have. Yeah, it, it sounds like a wonderful little combination that you have going with your, your partner Chris and your investor in, in Joyce at the moment and the business has really turned a corner. We're sitting here today in your new um, factory almost even and it's incredible to see the journey that the Kitchen Connection business um, has taken over the last five years from couldn't find a buyer to, you know, we were talking before the interview about product reviews and how you have one of the most enviable uh, product review ratings in, in the country uh, with significant um, customers reviewing you and reviewing you very favorably. favorably. Um, it's one of it's it's a very it's a success story, and I said to you, oh, it almost sounds a little bit too good to be true. Is this the end of the road for John Burke and the uh, you know mission accomplished, or is this just you know halfway through the the ski run and you're taking a pause and let's just keep going for the next le- um, expansion or evolution of the of the brand? No, look, I think it's um, th- this is. We always see, we never want to grow ahead of ourselves. Um, I think a big lesson I've had from growing up through the corporate culture is build your infrastructure first, have your right, your, your HR policies, have all have all the technology. And I'm very much, you know, I'm an older guy, but I'm very much technology driven. Everything, of all our brochures, all, we have apps that manage sales tracks through the showrooms. We're, we're developing an app to manage the installation. We're doing, we're very much technology based to, to keep not that we have a lot of competitors that are in kitchen renovations in a large scale in Australia. There's very, very few. You can count them on, on one hand. Um, but we want to be at the forefront of what we do there. But that also builds efficiencies in your organisation. Uh, I think we've doubled the business in the last four years. But at head office, we've added two people. Um, and that, I think, is... A, is and we've done that through technology and in implementing technology in the business and using this major asset we've purchased from... Uh, from the uh, administration days of uh, making sure that thoroughly works works for the system, but it's all all that sits in the background. And what I, I talk, keep talking about, they're all one percenters. That when someone comes into one of our showrooms, they go on a journey, and a very very fast journey, 
through to the completion of a kitchen, which, which can be any, under six weeks, which is unheard of in, in our industry. But we take them on a journey that makes them, gives them reassurance that you, they've made the right decision, that they, they're, they're getting the best quality product in, in their kitchen, because we only deal with the leading suppliers in the industry. We take all the procrastination out of it, we give them all the choices they need to make, but we make the choice, and then we make it fit very comfortably. So they don't fall out of that, and you know, everyone's probably talking, oh, look, I'm gonna start that, that renovation on something, and then you go down, start making inquiries, and it all gets too hard. And I'll, look, I'll leave it for another six months and come back. We believe we can tell people and handhold people right through the whole process. That just makes common sense. So um, as I say, most of our customers who come in our showroom, who purchase a kitchen, purchase it within 72 hours of being in the showroom. Because we've demonstrated the value of what we, we do. We've demonstrated that you've actually made all the right decisions. You just need to, you know, need to move forward now. And we look after you personally all the way through that installation. So you hear a big thing now is the customer experience. That's the big thing in industries right now. And I think you talk about how the, the retailers are trying to use customer experience to beat Amazon and so forth. I think if you look at ours, we, we live and breathe customer experience right down to getting that product review at the end of the day that creates referrals. So our mission as a company isn't a long paragraph. It's two words. It's whatever you do, create referrals. Do the 1% for the customer, go the extra. So they come in the showrooms, the muffins are cooking, the music's playing, everyone's in uniform, right through to our installers are in uniform, drivers are in uniform. There's a whole branded experience. We want the customer to feel reassured and comfortable all the way process through. So they're not feeling like, oh, this is just another company that's ripping me off. This is, I see the value with it. And that's what we try and create every day as a mission to the business. And as a customer myself, I can actually vouch for that entire process from start to, to finish it's true uh, it's a great story and your story in particular I think your personal journey has been quite enriching for me to hear it so thank you and thank you for sharing some of the the darker times the, the tough times in your in your journey um, I know that's can be tough at times and um, I think that I feel like I know you a fair bit better now that's for sure <laughs> um, so hey, thank you for your generosity in you know your openness to talk about some of and thanks for being a part of the Executive Stories. Thank you, Brad. Wow, that was a really great conversation with John Burke. Um, you can't say that you don't know the guy better now. Thank you for being so honest, John. Um, love to hear from you if you want to reach out to me. LinkedIn, the usual suspects, or the Clark Can website. Until next time. <laughs>